0: The Radio Misfits Podcast Network. Welcome to Wine Women Radio, where we discuss what we're drinking and what's happening in the wine
1: industry. Pour yourself a glass and enjoy the show.
2: Welcome, listeners, to the Wine Women Radio Show. I'm Marcia Maycumber, one of the Wine Women. My co-hosts today are also wine women. Lisa Adams Walter is the founder and CEO of Adams Walter Communications. Welcome,
3: Lisa. Thank you. I'm glad to be here, Marsha. Great
2: to have you with us today. And we have Misty Rodebush-Cain, Kane who is the marketing director for St. Supéry Estate Vineyards and Winery. Welcome, Misty. Thanks, Marsha. Great to have you here. Likewise. For our listeners who may be going, well, what the heck is Wine Women and what is the show all about? Wine Women is a nonprofit organization whose mission is to champion the advancement of women's careers in the wine industry by building strong relationships, essential business skills, and leadership among its members. The organization provides networking opportunities, training, and events throughout the year. And you can learn more about Wine Women at winewomen.net or the Facebook page, uh, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn. Just go out there and search for Wine Women Org and find that. Uh, Wine Women Radio is a part of it. Um, It's been around for a little bit more than six months locally here in Sonoma, but now we are expanding... Uh, to a national audience, and we're really excited to be able to do that. We are actually in our new home base today, the beautifully appointed Panel Wine Lounge in Sonoma at 535 West Napa Street in Sonoma. It's open Tuesdays through Fridays, 3 to 9 p.m., Saturday noon to 9 You can find a lot more details at panelwines.com. But they are a public wine lounge serving wine by the glass, draft beer, and espresso. They're also a small event venue with unique European-style space for your special events. They also have a distinctive global wine shop featuring West Coast wine and wine from France, Italy, Germany, Austria, Portugal, Australia, Chile, New Zealand, and beyond. And, to top it all off, they have one of the best international wine clubs. So, if you are interested in learning more about the Panels Exploration Club, search them out at panelwines.com. So, before we uh, bring in our next guest, I want to make sure our audience knows a little bit about our wine women background. So, Lisa, I want to turn to you a little bit. Um, We hadn't talked about your other big job, which in addition to doing public relations for wine food at the arts, you're also the executive editor and co-founder for Canvas, the experience magazine. How is that yes, all going?
3: It's going well. We're just about to release our next issue, um, which is only our second issue. It's brand new. Canvas is... Magazine, Canvas, the Wine Country Experience magazine, has the editorial voice of the professional recommenders of wine countries. But it's actually targeted toward consumers primarily. Um, The professional recommenders can be anyone from a concierge. Canvas is the concierge alliance of Napa Valley and Sonoma. It's It's a mouthful. a tongue twister. (laughs) Um, And I'm not affiliated with Canvas directly, the organization, but I am partnering with Colby Smith, who founded Canvas, and she directs that organization Mm -hmm. um, just on the magazine, on the publication itself.
2: And listeners might be wondering where they can pick up issues Where can they pick up issues Issues, if they're interested?
3: They're distributed all over wine country. A Mm -hmm. lot of the hotels and resorts and visitor centers and also at several um, hotels in San Francisco have Canvas magazine. And we have a, a beginning to build a subscriber base, which is exciting. And the electronic version is also available online on issue. Very good. Very exciting. And Misty, not only
2: have you served currently as director of marketing at St. Supery Estate Vineyards and Wines, but previously with B.R. Cone and some other things starting way back with AT&T long ago before you moved over into the wine industry. What's happening in your world right now?
1: Yeah. So in my world, we're, we're busy as ever. Um, feel like there's not a break in wine country any longer. And prior to... Um, probably in between EAT&T and BR Cone, I was with Foley Family Wines as well for quite some time. That's right. um, right. Had quite a a varied experience of the large portfolio wineries to single brands. So I'm um, loving helping um, St. Supery continue to grow the brand and come up with new exciting ways to bring our wines to our consumer and wholesale
2: customers. Exciting stuff. And with that, we should kick it off with our guest. Let me get my wine out from under one of these recording chords here. Peter Mathis with Mathis Wines is here to join us. Thank you,
3: Peter. Welcome, Peter. Cheers. Welcome,
1: cheers.
2: Ding dong, ding dong. So we are we are clinking here out kind of outside of the microphone range here. The newly released 2018 Mathis Rosé Drigaranash from Sonoma Valley, from your estate vineyard. Would you like to fill in our audience a little bit about the history of this wine and and what we're, we can expect in this vintage? <clears throat> well, let
4: me think where to start. Rosé has been a passion of mine from uh, a drinking standpoint for quite a while. We got-
2: Hold on a second. We're we're, we're we're your mic is dead. We need to rectify that here on our first show. We're gonna we're gonna let our technical expert work a little bit. On, ah, there we go. Ooh. There go. Technical difficulties in the oh, first show. That's perfect. You perfectly have to turn it okay. on, right? They, okay. oh, little oh, surprises. Thank so, you, um, Peter.
4: <laughs> so I was saying uh, that rose has been a passion of mine from a drinking standpoint, from a consumer standpoint my whole life it's uh, I've always loved how it pairs so well with foods uh, and it's a great standalone drink too in the especially in the warmer months and I think it's really, it really was underappreciated in the U.S. until recently it's, it's gained so much popularity in the last uh, decade but uh, maybe I don't know seven years ago I started making some off of my own vineyard, Mm -hmm. and it started really just as a mm, combination of, well, just serendipitously, let's say, I had some surplus carignan grapes, was the the first thing, and the thought bubble went off in my head, I was like, well, why don't I make some rosé out of that, that's a, carignan makes a great um, rosé grape, and um, I did, I think I made about seventy cases of it, and um,
2: and I remember, and it was delicious.
4: Yeah, and that, and then came the end of the year. I'm reporting to the TTB, my uh, that that's our governing agency, the tax right. and Trade Bureau. So we, um, I was reporting. Well, how much of it did I sell or ship out, and how much did I bring home for home consumption, which they don't make you pay tax on. So I I I look added it up Mm. and it well I said geez honey it looks like we uh, the twenty nine of those seventy two cases went through our household wow this is (laughs) this is clearly not going to be profitable and uh, Nina in her wisdom said the the problem isn't that we're drinking too much you're just not making enough you need to make more of it (laughs) so that our cut is a smaller percentage so uh, smart lady Um, that that. That surplus of Carignan grapes on my vineyard was just a one-time event, and so from then on, I've made it purely out of Grenache, and uh, which is a classic, the, the classic grape of rosé in the south of France. And I've uh, gradually grown it. Now it's a, quite a substantial production. Um, I typically make 500 to 700 cases of rosé every vintage.
2: it's a goodly amount for a vineyard that is only seven and a half acres to begin with Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so that's a substantial amount to work with there ladies do you have any questions or comments you want to throw out there about I'm a rosé
3: lover all year round I don't I don't save it only for the warm months so I think it's a beautiful wine it's pretty to look at it tastes really great I love it on the label it says I grow it I make it (laughs) which is pretty (laughs) concise and to the Mm -hmm. point yeah, where,
2: where did where did the slogan come from, I grow what I make it?
4: Uh, when when I was making my label, when I was generating the labels with my um, old college roommate, David Chung, uh, we were working on kind of a graphic novel approach to the, the labels. This is for the Grenache back mm-hmm. in, I don't know, 2004 or something like that. And we kept running into problems. It wasn't clear enough, let's say. And I, David asked me to reduce the, the sentiment to the, the smallest possible statement. I said, David, just capture these two things. I grow it and that I make it. And he said, Peter, let's just print it on the label and we're done. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And the rest oh is history. The rest yeah. is history.
1: And for yeah. the listeners out there um, who can't see this beautiful color, it's a very, very pale, pale salmon color. Very, very nice. Yeah. It's
4: This is probably, this is for sure the palest of the gr- the rosés I've made. I always try to keep them in the paler window. It, it, it's cor- very correlated to the this, to this taste, pro- or the structural profile that I'm looking for. The I'm looking for something with very, very low tannins when I make this. So to, to get there, you have to p- harvest the grapes cold in the morning, early as possible, get them into the press, whole cluster, squeeze them very lightly, and you have to vigilantly stay right there at the press to make the cut for when there is too much tannin or too much color in, in the juice. So in this vintage... Typically they, those that that threshold comes at about the same point in the pressing cycle. So in this vintage, the tannin expressed itself earlier. So the the, the color was super pale when I first started to perceive the tannin. So the cut is earlier, say, than normal. And um, to, to achieve that very low, kind of elbow and prickle-free experience of the rosé that I'm trying to make. So that's the classic style of the Provence, is to mm-hmm. have something really on, virtually devoid of aggressive characters that come from the phenolics or tannins.
2: Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And uh, full disclosure, I've been there for some, uh, some uh, or a few of the pressings, and the juice coming out um, is somewhat opaque uh, or it's, it's translucent it's not this clear yeah. but it, ha- but you almost can't see the color it, at, well, at all it, it depends That's where
4: you are in the cycle when I first run the press the, the juice is um, almost you could make a white wine out of it say the right. first 10% of what comes out of the press mm-hmm. I could make a full on white wine from it mm-hmm. and then it gradually takes on color Towards the very end, it's quite dark. It's, it's, it's virtually red wine at the end. Wow. Wow. But the, the cut for the rosé portion right. is well before that.
2: So let's back up a little bit. We haven't really talked too much. Um, we've only talked about this one. We haven't talked about your background and how you found and established um, Mathis Vineyard. Y- you started way over in Massachusetts making furniture, Long before wine and, and, mm-hmm. and then eventually mm-hmm. uh, moved on to running Ravenswood uh, uh, many years down the road. How, how did it go from Massachusetts and furniture making to wine making? Well, I,
4: the furniture, furniture making, I did, I've done a lot of things in my life. I'm a dabbler, I guess. And the furniture making was, I think, the first, say, main career where I stuck at something for many years. Um, I was doing that quite cheerfully in Western Mass, and, uh, but I got bit by the wine bug. I got very interested in um, tasting wines, thinking about them, uh, reading about them, researching, exploring. So it, it over, over the course of a couple years, it, I was using so much energy around those issues that I decided, oh, you know, I need to make, I've got to make this. As well, I've been making things my whole life. Well, it it was clear that I wasn't going to be making it in Western Mass, where (laughs) there's snow on the ground um, (laughs) nine months of the year, sort of. And uh, I started looking at it, and okay, this is going to require a move. And um, gradually, I got comfortable with the idea that I'd make an actual career change, and I'd just plunge into it. And uh, I looked at coming to school first at UC Davis and Fresno State University. Those two places have the programs for the education for winemakers in the US. And uh, it just wasn't my style to go back to school. But I bought all the books, brought them home from both schools. I got the full curriculum. Brought them home and spent a year reading them. Continued on the tasting process. and exploring wines from around the world. And I came out to California with a lot of book knowledge, not a lot of uh, hands-on. I'd done a little bit of um, intern-type work in a winery on the in the Hudson River Valley, mm-hmm. uh, that, which was helpful, very helpful. Anyway, but I came out here, and I went to work at Ravenswood just as a harvest intern, really. But I made myself indispensable in that first vintage that was uh nineteen ninety. And uh well it par I parlayed it into a permanent position and just a few years after that I was really running the operational side of the but the 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 that's actual production room. side of the the um winery and ultimately was named winemaker and general manager. It's a rapid ascent.
2: Yeah, that's very very nice thing. John. Now, since you got three women here at the end of the table, I, I have to ask, what what was you know, mainly men at the top of the food chain there at, at Ravenswood? Do you have did you have a bunch of women on the staff? You got any interesting stories for us about <laughs> women in wine at Ravenswood? Just well, out of curiosity.
4: <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, so at the time, when I went into the business, it was I I'm trying to think think about it there were there were wine there were women winemakers in the business um, at that time there were no women that I knew of that worked in, on the cellar floor in any winery why do you um, think that was I have no idea okay uh, I mean it, it, at Ravenswood it's grueling physical work and um, th- that may have been a part of it Anyway, at some point, uh, probably around n- seven, ni- sorry, ninety-eight, we had a woman come and interview. She came from a Napa winery, by the way. Um, she'd come from, uh, oh, I can't remember which, well, Phelps. I think she worked at Phelps. Oh. Anyway, she came over, and she came over and joined us in the cellar. That was our first. Woman on the floor, and Mm -hmm. uh, the work was still just brutally physical at that point in the uh, Ravenswood history. It was very old school and um, just required a lot of muscle strength. Let's say, get through the especially the harvest period. Um, Over the years, we as we grew, we um, we opened wineries with less that required less demands on the the workers Mm -hmm. let's say and um we had more and more women work on the floor although it's still uh, dominated by men in the on the floor i would say currently at ravenswood's makeup it's only men on the floor in full-time positions and then there's a number of women that join for the harvest period
1: it is it is quite interesting to think about you know the sellers and and that that makeup um from a ratio perspective,
4: mm-hmm. it and is. How, it has
1: changed over time.
2: D- yeah. I I know I couldn't do it even after doing crossFit for a number of years I didn't think I could hardly move a barrel an empty barrel no. so yeah
1: you and you think of you know firefighters and where we've came in that arena right. as well and some of these other really physical demand physically like very rigorous um, demanding positions and I mean just where we've came from mm-hmm. a perspective of first being accepted in those positions as a woman to then you know right. being able to really fully carry out the demand of the work um, that's put in front of you. So I think it's nice and yeah. we've had some different winemakers on the show as well that have been women and they've talked to us about some of the challenges they faced with, um, you know, ranging from like a um, forklift not being the right size or really <laughs> fitted to a woman or, right. um, you know, just and then the general acceptance. So it's been interesting and I've, I've really loved to hear about how women have mm-hmm. sort of established themselves mm-hmm. in that space and they're making it work and they're very, very successful from a winemaking perspective as yeah, well. So very it's, successful. Yeah.
2: So let's, let's take a little bit of a jump. So we talked about your time at Ravenswood. When did your own vineyard appear on the mm-hmm. horizon, sort yeah. of figuratively speaking? Yeah.
4: It, in the origin story, I mean, it was, it, I always was pursuing that. That was the reason I came out here was to start my own business. And I had expected to just spend a, two or three years uh, under a, a, another company's roof. I'd always mm-hmm. been self-employed throughout my life. And um, it was new to me. And I didn't think I'd like it. <laughs> but I had... But you stayed I, 20-something I years, 20, years with <laughs> Ravenswood, had, so it stuck. I, uh, so I, the whole time I'm, my my eyes are on the prize was having my own brand and my own vineyard. And um, But the work was exciting it was growing so fast and they kept having uh new opportunities for me i got to do all kinds of things that i love doing building wineries designing processes um the art mm-hmm. of winemaking is fascinating to me the, the and then the science behind it is also um uh dear to my heart let's say and uh, um uh anyway <coughs> let's I didn't leave Ravenswood uh, as we said for 26 years uh, in 1997 I finally found this property to um, purchase s- smaller than I had imagined you know that only seven and a half acres I was thinking I needed 20 acres or something like that um, and I, ha- I had accumulated enough money to actually buy the thing and uh, that started I, I spent a few years, to clear the land and ultimately plant it in 99 and 2000. Um, and I planted it to my great the grapes that I love the most, Grenache. I wanted to make a Grenache-based wine. And I chose some non-traditional blending grapes to also plant in there. So I had ra- the, the the classic formula, let's say, for uh, southern run wines is Grenache with Syrah and Morvede, used as the blending tools um i by then i'd seen enough Syrah and Morved from my work at ravenswood to to have the feeling it just wasn't the right partner it didn't behave the same way here in the u.s as it did in france and uh, i chose to to plant petit Syrah, alicante boucher and carignan in the field along with the grenache and that came from my experience with the old Zinfandel blocks that have that planted in. It, was a, it turned out to be a great call. They they work really well together with the Grenache.
2: So you steered away from the traditional ones you mentioned, France. the Syrah and yeah. the France traditional ones, mm-hmm. Syrah and Mourvedre. So I take it from your description that means uh, the way in which they ripen and therefore... Uh, the fruit flavors, the sugar, the tannins, the acid, it I was just different than what you were looking for.
4: I think the, the, the important part is the flavor profiles, yeah. Okay,
2: yeah. so the f- sounds pretty good.
1: From, I, I'm going back. I'm still stuck on this notion. I grow it, and I make it. <laughs> yeah. I, um, so, I mean, with that, that speaks a lot. That speaks, you know, farmer first, and, you know, that's what really, really the brand's about. In that and making that huge transition to making wine on your own, what would you say is the most memorable harvest? And then maybe on the flip side, your most challenging harvest? Um, Mm. Because I know Mother Nature sure throws some curveballs at us sometimes. Or you know maybe it has nothing to do with Mother Nature and maybe just you know getting used to growing grapes Mm -hmm. on your own. Mm
4: -hmm. Well, I have to say there's two parts to this answer. The first is (laughs) yes the most memorable. I have a terrible memory. <laughs> 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 I need to that. I have an awful memory. And the other part is this: around challenges or easy. Honestly, after my cur- my day job, where I have to occasionally, har- you know, manage the harvesting and wine production of say four or five hundred tons of gra- grapes in a day, or bottling fifteen thousand cases of wine to manage uh, my own harvest of 20 to 25 tons of grapes every year is not, it doesn't feel like a really giant job to me, honestly. So it's, it's never felt crazy for me to get my own harvest in and make the wine. I've had the luxury of making it over these years at Ravenswood, the facility. Um, with a staff that I know well, it's uh, th- I ha- had a. I have a contract to do it under my previous employment agreement, and it's extended on into the since I've left in 2016.
2: And the facilities are, well, to me they're luxury. I mean, there's you know multiple crush pads available and lots and lots of storage and yeah, plenty of maneuvering yeah. room. Yes,
4: for for something this small, it's. Um, let's say lavishly expansive
2: which is a which is yeah. a, a you know a nice way to be able to go about doing that so before we move into your signature wine the one that you made first which was the red grenache i wanted to find out if um, well let's start with you peter what do you like to pair with your rosé trick grenache what are your favorite pairings and then i'll let the ladies say what they might
4: with well in in our house we um we drink it a lot with spicier foods especially asian foods my wife is thai and we eat a lot of thai based kind of foods and it it pairs very very well with that the key the reason that works is the lack of tannin so whenever you're working with wines and foods one of the most important things is if the food has some aggressive quality to it, like uh, the chemicals that make food hot, mm-hmm. um, you need to have wines that are mitigating it or, or calming to your palate. Mm-hmm. And so like a lot of times people suggest to, that you should have Zinfandel, say, with barbecue, spicy barbecue. But I, that's, a, for me, not a good combo. The Zinfandel can have a fair amount of tannin and the alcohol. Both of those things can kind of inflame your palate along with the, the spiciness of the dish. So, so those are a like bad combo. Okay. Um, to me, for me. So, so okay, so I, I like it with spicy food. I like it with just simple vegetables and grilled meats kind of thing. Just classic summer fare.
2: Okay. Ladies,
3: I, I was thinking of, and you mentioned Thai, I was thinking of like fresh rolls with like the pepper dipping sauce mm-hmm. would be really delicious oh. with this wine. It's just a, it's a very pretty, very delicate, and I, I'm getting like really like rose petal scents that arise r- r- out of it. So, I mean, it's a nice um, sipper, like a nice way to start the right. evening too. Mm-hmm.
2: And there are even yeah. rose petals on the label itself. <laughs> That's are true. There? Yes. Yeah. In yes. Salad. It's it's um. a, for you can't see it pretty well in this light but there's it's oh, kind of the I watermark on the Beautiful. label paper okay peter was that your plan
4: it was to really? look like rose wall, uh, wallpaper
2: there you go very well, pretty it seems like a success to me in that regard misty did you have some yeah, thoughts I, on I, pairing yeah I, I love rosé
1: during the summer i mean i mean i'm a, a rosé drinker all year round as well but i really um really gravitate towards it during the summer months. So summer salads with some grilled protein on top and, you know, throw a little spice on that. And then it really balances the wine out really nicely all the way. And then also as a snack, it's fabulous with some cheese and, um, if it's really dry Rose, it's fantastic to try it with some strawberries. Um, it's exactly. Always, you know, one of my favorite dishes during the summer is a grilled salmon with a strawberry salsa <gasps> and um, paired with a rosé. Oh, so it's yeah. It's just fantastic.
2: Yummy cool. stuff. One of my favorites, Peter's probably going to find this really strange with this rosé, uh, is I'm a banana fan. Hmm. With banana has Ooh. a, f- I don't know, it has a fair amount of sugar, but it doesn't taste like straight sugar. And this rosé with bananas Mm-hmm. Is actually the bomb I can to me, imagine. but I think you have to be a banana person to get can, in that. Banana you can scent. add
0: pears in there too. Yeah, uh, the uh, pears are perfect with oh, oh, like yeah, this. Exactly,
2: it's the sweet, the sweet, right. really. For our listeners, that's John Myers, producer and, hey, good, and host of the 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 <laughs> Winemakers Podcast. Yes,
0: that's that's true, and, and but also helping out here,
2: helping and, out today. And for
1: our listeners, if they have any great recommendations or um, pairing suggestions, send them to us. Send, send them, them to us. us.
2: Put it in the comments section there on uh, the, the channel. Uh, we'd love to hear what those are. So I'll tell you what. we're. I think it's time for us to move on to the red Grenache, the 2015 Estate Mathis Grenache, which has been out for a little bit. We're going to pass the, the dump bucket around. John, why don't you pour a little bit... There, and um, oh. let's see if we, uh, there we... There we go. We're get, we're getting a little bit more moved around. So the first vintage of the Mathis Estate Sonoma Valley Grenache uh, was 2005, Peter? Four.
4: Four. four. I, I made a 2003 even, but I did not release it. I was... Um, I was kind of waiting to see new vineyards. You never really know where they're going to go, flavor-wise or te- texture profile. And um, I, while I really enjoyed the 2003, the 2004, I, when it came in, was really noticeably different. And I wanted to see, okay, is this, uh, wh- where is this going to head? I actually waited until the 2005 vintage was um, made to wine the fall of 2005, to decide would I bottle the 2003 or not. And it was meaning that 2004 and 2005 (laughs) were similar. The three was an outlier, and I decided to just not confuse the marketplace with the initial release of um, a different wine.
2: Okay, very interesting. So I'm getting, you know, a lot of cherry notes on this, on the initial open. Um, some plum is in there. Some currants. Uh, fig. Like, I'm getting fig. You're getting a little fig. A little figgy. <laughs> <that's> fun stuff. <laughs> now, P- Peter, this is not a. Um, this is not 100 percent grenache. You actually have a field blend planted in your vineyard. Mm-hmm. Um, what? Uh, uh, what's the general blend, and how come you chose to do a blend as opposed to? Uh, many people who commonly do a hundred percent Grenache. Mm-hmm.
4: Well, <clears throat> no. So the blend is typically it's typically in the mid '80s Grenache. So this vintage, I believe, is '84. Kind of making that up, yes, but that's true. Um, and it has nine percent Carignan, six percent Petit Sirah, and one percent Alicante. So the Alicante is never more than a one or two percent. The the real interplay, uh, or the real variables is the Carignan and the Petit Syrah. So why did I choose to do it? It's I had l- seen the benefits of mi- co-fermenting grapes um, to add complexity and also uh, chara- desirable characters in the wine. So the Petit is a fabulous blending tool, or especially when co-fermenting. But it. I'd seen that with Zinfandel and all kinds of other red grape varieties. Just a little bit 3, 4, 5 to 10% Petite Syrah added into a tank can make a real strong impact in the um, structural characters of the wine and also it it enhances color clearly. Mm -hmm. Um, adds a spice note, uh, I think in my wine it's responsible for there's a kind of a bay leaf note that um, it's pretty subtle, but it's in all vintages. It comes from the Petit Syrah. carrying in uh, adds a brightness, um, freshness to the wine, a blue fruit characters. Uh, mm-hmm. I should add one thing, um, that Grenache is, li- like Zinfandel, is a grape that benefits really Getting letting it get quite ripe, so I'm harvesting it when it's over 26 bricks for it to develop its its full flavor and um, color, and mm-hmm. I, I, it needs to get ripe, not at all unlike Zinfandel. Okay, and like Zinfandel, it you know it would produce an, a wine with too high of alcohol. So the Petite Syrah and Carignan that are added into the tank are well behind it in sugar accumulation, but they taste and behave as if they're ripe at these lower Brixes. So that lower sugar added to the tank results in a low, uh, moderated alcohol. You know? Wow. So, so it, it bumps it down uh, about a half a degree, let's say, of alcohol, the finished wine. And another benefit. Another well, benefit. Of blending, yes
2: very very cool ladies did you have some questions i see something going on i see lots <laughs> of feverish note I'm, taking here i am taking it.
3: lots of notes I, I i love that that concept of co fermenting i hadn't really thought about it before so i thought that was i don't a neat know thing of to much, learn about.
2: i don't know of uh, it's not predominant in the us or in northern california um no. It, it, do you think there's a reason for that or is it a level of experience with the varieties mm. involved or is it a business decision that people are waiting to see what mm. happens with each variety before making those business decisions and blending?
4: Uh, for me, it's a, um, I, I feel like the qualities of blending at the fermenter are, you get a lot more um, positive outcomes that way. The scare why is it it's a little it's scarier when you do it that way because you can't take it back out, right? You're not bench testing, well what does five percent of this look like or whatever. So some of the blending we do in a commercial winery is is that type where we'll just put a glass of one variety and glasses of the other ones and start blending them at different ratios and Mm -hmm. seeing what happens. But especially for textural Qualities having them in the tank together at the fermenter is, um, I think, is really beneficial. It's like it's not unlike cooking. You wouldn't make a recipe and cook the all the ingredients separately and then dump them together at the very end. (laughs) People would think you were crazy, right? It and to me, winemaking and cooking are a lot more similar than anyone really realizes. True, it's not a they're very, very similar, and I think of the my Grenache as sort of the base or the headlining ingredient of the of what I'm trying to prepare, and then uh, the, these other three grapes are the spices that I use.
2: Do you also think because of your experience, your many years of experience with Ravenswood, ahead of developing your own brand and wine, that you could anticipate? what your results were going to be by co-formenting because of your, because of your experience, you knew how it was going to come out. A lot of people may not have that surety Mm -hmm. and confidence of how it's going to come out. um, By, by, you know, it's, it's a little bit putting all your eggs in one basket literally up front. People Mm -hmm. get nervous about doing Mm -hmm. that. Sometimes the, the, the analogy that came to mind to me when I learned that you did the co-fermenting and the field blend was I had come from, a in part, a stage lighting background, and Jennifer Tipton, who's a Broadway lighting designer, um, was well-known for being the only lighting designer on Broadway who would set lighting levels while the crew had all the work lights on on the stage to get the rest of the work done because she knew how the re- what the result would be once the work lights were mm-hmm. turned off. But nobody else had the confidence to... Execute in that manner. So,
4: hmm. just, just well, a little just unusual.
3: Lots of fruit in the nose, like you were saying, the blue fruit. It's really a beautiful wine. What is your oak program with this?
4: Uh, <coughs> so, I, it's aged in y- used or neutral French oak barrels. So, I never use any new French oak in this wine. I, do, I don't want the wine to, the fruit profile of the Grenache to be have that mask or overlay of the oak character uh, i'm kind i'm in general i'm a little anti new oak in wines i think it's w- wildly overused in uh, modern wines it, we spend all this time talking about and pursuing uniqueness of each product to add something that unifies them or may obscures the uniqueness of each individual wine the, grape the vineyard site the vintage the that that being the oak profile to me is crazy that we would just put this on top of what is so, you know we're spending so much intellectual effort to make it special and different and then we add this character that homogenizes everything
2: so f- so let's flip that on the other yeah. end which is if you're using a neutral oak program and obviously not a stainless steel program here with your red Grenache. What, what are you, what are you getting from the
4: neutral oak? Oh, uh, (coughs) so aging in a barrel is a time honored way to um, have the wine mature with, with very minute amount of oxygen contact. Um, It's, it's really obviously different than a wine that's been aged in a stainless steel tank, for example. Mm-hmm. It's completely different. The wine is much more mature and um, what we call it made when it's in a wine in a oak barrel, even if it's neutral.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Okay. All right. It's that's magic,
4: and I mean, in in many parts of the world, aging in those vessels are important but they would not allow you to use a new barrel. Peter, uh,
0: what would it taste like if w- you had used some good French oak on this? Some new French oak,
4: it? you yes. mean? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Uh, well, it would have layers of, it would have vanilla kind of characters or, or something along those lines. Mocha characters and um, uh, or smoke characters depending on the toast level of the oak. And in an increasing concentration. You know, once it's...
0: Mm. Well, this it, just doesn't need it. Well, I, and nice I would thing. say
4: most wines don't need it, honestly. That's my assessment. The marketplace has said, has spoken, and they disagree with me. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, certainly not on Chardonnays. I mean, that was a very 80s, 90s thing, the buttery, oaky and Chardonnay. And some people still like it, so yeah, that's up to their personal taste. Some people do, yep. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Not me.
4: <laughs> so, so
2: I have to, I have to say, I cheated a little bit. I opened a 2013 Mathis Grenache last night, and where is it? It's not on this table. <laughs> it's not on this table because I, I'm hoarding it. Um, and we're drinking a 2015, the current release, to be found at MathisWine.com. Um, but certainly, one of the things to me uh, for our listeners who may not be familiar with Grenache is simply it's. It's a big red fruit grape um, this it, it seems to be very cheery you get red cherries, black cherries plums strawberries raspberries what what else am I missing ladies here and I mean it's just a lot of fruit and I and I and so when John you were asking Peter about um, how would new oak affect it I was thinking oh the the vanilla and Caramel flavors that come out depending upon toast levels of barrels, that just starts kind of interfering to me with all this beautiful red fruit flavors. That, so, that's how I see it.
4: Yeah. Sorry, Misty. Oh no,
1: that's fine. Yeah, the fruit is is so powerful. It's so um, fantastic.
2: What would, What would you What comes to mind that you would eat? this with what would you pair it with Eat oh my them. gosh well
1: this is so versatile <laughs> i mean yeah. it's so versatile and so approachable um it could go with just an assortment just from your everyday meals to you know some
3: burgers casseroles, wild, yeah. burgers casseroles cassolets yeah. duck confit for sure duck <laughs> confit. Yes.
2: yum yeah, well, yeah, that's favorite. an everyday i, I <laughs> do that I all thinking. the time at home yes
3: <laughs> It just i don't know it's just that i love duck confit i could just I think this would taste fabulous with that.
2: Peter, at the Mathis household, uh, besides all that wonderful spicy Thai food, uh, what else do you like we, pairing your Grenache We with? serve
4: it with all kinds of food. It, it really, um Grenache is noted, I would say, for its ability to pair with almost anything. So it just, it's super versatile in terms of food pairing. Probably, so, in my mind, the most versatile of varietals.
2: All right. Listeners, you you heard it here first. Peter Mathis says Grenache is the most versatile variety out there. I also know that the Mathis Grenache is a frequent visitor to the Myers household. What do yeah, you like and it. Joan pair Everything. Mathis Grenache with?
0: Castle first of all, and yeah. Duck Confit. Um, Cake, I do a see? lot of that. I can yeah. I can do it with steaks. I can do it with burgers. I can do it with pizza. It's <laughs> it well, it cuts across all of it. You know, you really don't have to have. Anything else? I'm. I, I still have a bunch of yours. You told me years ago to put away the Uber. Mm-hmm. I still have a half and a dozen yeah. maybe, you know we should, maybe
2: we should start <laughs> moving towards the Uber blend. <laughs> well, not to
0: do that correctly. to this show, but you know, you don't want to throw all that away. See, I'm not a big ah. fan of spit buckets oh, I know. at all. <laughs> me,
2: neither. <laughs> me neither. But I want to no make, make sure necessity. we make we it. get this all in here. And um, Peter ain't gonna let you do a little pouring here as... He's done it before. He's done it before. He has experienced, and he's actually got an event here at the panel this evening where he's going to be pouring uh, a bunch more wine. Peter, how did you originally stumble uh, uh, across Grenache? Was this just in your experience of um, sampling all those wines back in western Massachusetts that you stumbled across some great Grenache that got your attention?
4: It was. I, uh, I had spent a my tasting time really reviewing all the varietals of the world. So well, I would go to my local wine shop. They um, had provided me with their book, meaning that that's the what they could order. Mm-hmm. I had their, their catalogs, basically, of what was orderable. And I would pick a grape variety each week and buy a mixed case of wines from all over the world with that variety. And I quickly... Came to love the when it was Grenache week. I just loved the wines from made from that grape wherever they were made, but in particular the south of France. The classic southern Rhone um, region is the kind of the heartland of yeah. the um, of the. Now, Grenache are you talking week. Avignon area? No, it's uh, near um, Orange. Okay. Yeah, a little farther yeah. south then. Yeah, yeah. Chate, like shut enough to pop. Of course. Uh, uh. Uh, the 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 villages there: Vaccaras, Carpentras, um, through that area, Gigandas. <laughs> One of my favorites there. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> they're, they're all more or less. It just got romantic s- on me. <laughs> <the> yeah. <same laughs> you know. They're they're blends that are do- predominantly Grenache, and then have varying degrees of. Um, Syrah and Morvette in them, along with a few other grapes.
2: So before we talk about um, the Uberland, giving the, uh, everybody a chance to to taste it and absorb and think about it a little bit, um, today while we're recording, <laughs> it's actually a, we're getting one of those strange mid-May downpours an atmospheric river, as it's being called at the moment. Um, but besides that, what's... You know, since you grow it, I'm taking that you're familiar with what's actually happening in the growing stage in your vineyard right now. Can you talk a little bit about the growing season right now?
4: Yeah, I'm very, very familiar with the growing (laughs) out there on your Kabuta tractor. (laughs) Yeah, I've been, uh, yeah. So I I do all the farming on my vineyard myself. So, uh, right, we've had a very wet spring by um, historical standards, I think of the wettest since I've been here in California, and it's led to... Was, oh, I should back up to say that my vineyard is on the mountainside in the hills above the town of Sonoma, and it's rel- It's very well-drained and kind of draughty, poor soil, so my vineyard loves this extra water. It really leads to um, excellent growth in the springtime, so I've I probably have more growth at this point, that means kind of how long is a shoot at this point in its uh, life span um, than I've ever had. And I love it, it's great. And there I'm was loving, so this much loving this winter. rain today. So the, uh, that's a really nice um, kick starter for the rest of the growth that needs to get made before the plant kind of shuts down um, and just focuses on ripening. So the grapes, the vines are in um, right at the beginning of the bloom period. Maybe a bad thing, given the predicted um, one week of mixed weather. Looking for
0: some shatter in there?
4: Yeah. It, but I think, you know, in some way it might be beneficial too. It's too early to really say, but it might... Quick assessment was that there was quite a bit of crop on the in the vineyard, so some shatter as long as it's not crazy. Shatter is a process where the um, b- the blooms do not fertilize and no uh, grape berry doesn't come into fruition. So, um,
2: and, and just to add a quick little clarification, the blooms don't require bees.
4: No, they're, they're self pollinate. Yes. Okay, for so our listeners, uh, just so they know. Um, some shatter, as long as it's limited, would probably be a good thing in the Mathis Vineyard this year. Okay. Uh, otherwise, I'll be out there. I'll be cutting crop down. Let's say, later in the year. Which always makes a lot of people
2: upset to see it go away, but it's, it's for sad. It's the health of the
4: health of the vineyard. Yes.
2: Yeah, or okay. it's
4: really not the health of the vineyard; it's the quality of the wine. Thank you for yeah. the clarification.
2: Yeah. So cool. So it's so it sounds like given uh, as we see how the rain comes out and everything that, um, vintage 2019 could be pretty big, could be pretty big. And I, and I want to hearken back to Lisa's original question about, um, favorite vintage. And you said memory, Mm -hmm. but, um, having, uh, I've known Peter for almost 10 years. um, the the first one that really stuck out in my head is like a big one, and that you said to me was like special was the twenty ten. Twenty ten was a right?
4: good, very good year. Yes.
2: So. Um, For I, my
4: vineyard, my vineyard does not necessarily march to the same drummer that the the rest of our region does. By the way.
2: Is that uh, because it's kind of tucked in? It's at the bottom of a mountain hill, and or I don't know. That. I'm just. Curious. Could be
4: that and it could be the vineyard manager. Could be. Well let's, oh okay.
2: So we'll pin it all on the vineyard manager. No, the vineyard Chuck manager was, is not uh, does not
4: always do it exactly the way the rest of the business does. So Well now, now that
2: you put that out there, for the listeners, you have to explain that a little bit a little bit. What's a little bit different? What's one thing is your your rows aren't that wide, but maybe yeah. that's not what you were getting at.
4: Well, I just, uh, the, I came into this um, with my, kind of a, my usual self-confidence that I could figure this out. So I, I had figured out how to make wine, and I felt very um, comfortable asserting, like, an expertise at that side of the business. But once I got into my farm side, I realized how little I knew about the growing part. And uh, I started my vineyard doing it, typically my way it took i got a lot of good advice from people then i ignored it and i um <laughs> i planted my vineyard on uh very very narrow rows which seemed like a great idea to me at the time that uh, i my theory was that the principal resource was sunlight and a. Uh, that any sunlight that was falling in the middle of rows was just wasted money. And my vineyard was remember I wanted a twenty acre vineyard and I ended up with a seven and a half acre vineyard. So you were so trying I was looking to for like oh well I need to use more of this land. So you're trying to do try twenty acres
2: it? worth in seven yeah, and a half.
4: There you go. So <laughs> I, my rows are four and a half feet apart, and um, which on a hillside is really narrow because the the hillside that side mm-hmm. slope. So, um, I've quickly found that there was no equipment really available to farm that narrow of row so I, I ended up having to modify or build my own equipment that, to go through the field and um, well anyway I just I, I grow it I make the farming I grow, yes. equipment I make yes. the wine <laughs> well, <laughs> I, was tried, gonna, I was done gonna, a lot of welding over I the wanted years.
3: to <laughs> add to the um, slogan it should be I grow it I make it my way yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did it my way. <laughs> yeah. Not always the smartest way, right? but uh,
4: yeah, we get it done. We so it done.
3: so okay. can, what are some of the neighboring vineyards that are close to where you're located? Well, Who grows it, up there?
4: It's pr- part of a swath of um, really superb vineyards that runs from the ridgepole of Mount Vieter right down. I'm the lowest elevation of them all. So the ridge pole is around 3,000 feet. The top up there, there's two relatively obscure vineyards up there, um, Random Ridge and Sky Vineyards. Kinda, um, Sky Vineyards was once pr- quite famous, I believe. In, when I first came out here, it was famous. But it's... Um, anyway. It's they were also hit very hard by the 2017 yeah. wildfires. Yes, they were. Because yes they're at indeed. the top of the <laughs> hill. <laughs> um, anyway, that that's at the top. The most famous vineyard in the... There's about 25 vineyards that run, spill down the hillside. Um, the most famous of them all is Monte Rosso. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Hanzel is in that, although not contiguous. Um, and uh, Rancho Salinas is maybe not the most famous of vineyards, but it's certainly one of the, the outstanding producers in the state. In mm-hmm. the region um,
0: and doesn't Richard Arrowwood have Emma Paula Creek up he there? Does, yes. also
4: yes there's a there's a number of really top quality Petroni vendors. is up there further yeah. north from you yeah. and um, so. yeah, there's just some spectacular vineyards right. from really from top right. to bottom.
2: So we're closing in almost towards the end and we've been sipping away at your high end highly delicious the Uber blend not named for the driving no, right service. One of my
4: favorites, absolutely. But yeah,
2: exactly. Uh, Want to tell John, us John, how, you how I an early
4: adopter. Oh. <laughs> I appreciate that. <laughs> yes. Tell but tell us about it.
2: the origins of
4: Uberland. Uberland. So, uh, I start this was I st- when when I first went into the project, I had imagined myself um, kind of mm, following in the footsteps of the old vigneron in the south of France. I was going to make one wine, in the and I was people would come to me and get the wine, and it would disappear all by itself. And it would just be one product from my farm. Um, within a few years, I realized, number one, my business model was probably not exactly um, au courant with the marketplace. And also, my creative interests were getting piqued. It's like, what else can I make here? I always make things all my life. So I, I had these four very interesting grapes to play around with. I think starting in 2007, I started to make little cuvées on the side, blending different proportions of the, the grapes, again, co-fermenting them, and just seeing what would happen, you know, what would happen if I made a Carignan-centric grape. What would happen a Petit Syrah centric grape like that? And um, after just a couple years, it was clear to me that I, there was something really interesting that I could do with a Petit Syrah base grape. So I love mm-hmm. Petit It's It can be, however, very difficult as a standalone variety because it's just so tannic. It can be vicious and also kind of mono dimensional. Um, so I found that blending it in the fermenter, so a blend of, that was somewhere in the 50%, 40 to 50% range of Petit Sirah, with the balance really riding on the Grenache and Carignan, and maybe 10% Alicante Boucher, w- made a really nice blend year after year. So I would just make these co-ferments in um, ton and a half size for uh, fermenters and, no, you didn't happen. sell these. I didn't. I intended Were these, to. Was
2: this uh, porch drinking wine? You know, uh, uh, I mean your porch, your your personal porch. No. <laughs> no, I would
4: I would end up getting it into some other product, ah, okay. like a random product. But it was um, okay. Um, I wanted to sell it, but I dithered uh, around uh, making the labels over the years. Um, again, with my old college roommate David Chung. Was working on that label, and we, uh, the creative process took a long time. <laughs> we, uh, that was part of the delay. And um, by the time we actually came to printing the labels, Uber had become famous. In the interim, we had started this. He, he had done the original work of um, the labeled art back in 2007. So it was before Uber wow. was on my radar, at least. And, uh-huh. Uh it, Uber just Anybody's. came as the, the operative code name for the project, and we ended up adopting it as the actual name. So. Uh,
2: I like
3: cool. it. You like
2: it? And Misty, yeah. you were also talking a bunch about the label before we started... Recording. What were your observations in looking at all of this? Because you you started talking about it. There's so much going
1: on. Yeah, I loved it. There was a lot of embossing and um, some UV coating, which is very fun. Like great texture and I love but it's all simple too. I know I love it's uh, the graphic novel it comes from your original um, sort of your original ideas and it your looks original and looks conception
3: like a wood carving kind yeah. of thing yeah like a, a print mm-hmm. from a wood carving or mm-hmm. that sort of thing
4: David was famous in uh, in his college he, he's a professional he artist and teacher, art it. teacher at University yeah. of Michigan but he was famous in his youth for um, wood cuts and lino cuts in particular yeah. so he would be slashing out um, posters on a daily basis for events that would happen just the next day. You know, I hope people them.
2: collected those posters because I bet they're there are worth, they're worth are, to be uh, framed. Do you have, they, do you have they, any they, yourself?
4: I do not. However, some of my friends do from our college years. There's not much has survived. We led a pretty wild life back there in 1976. <laughs> but... Um, uh, some has survived, and it's pretty stunning. But that we wanted to capture that, that lino-cutter, wood-cut yeah. look. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you it's, did.
1: It's cool. Yeah, it's really nice. Well,
3: the, the wine is beautiful. Lots of fruit and herbal notes. I'm getting, like, sage on the nose, and mm-hmm. then um, r- flavors of raspberry and currant. I don't know what the two of you have what to would, add.
2: What, and, and what would you p- pair with oh, this goodness. wine?
3: I mean, it's a big wine, mm-hmm. so it it needs it needs something that's equally, I think, powerful yeah, and big it, to go with it. I do a big
4: stew with it myself. It, mm-hmm. The petit has a lot of structure behind it, and that's tannin and density. And it it needs something to kind of push against, or um, and and that for my at least my palate is something that has some fat to it, some cheese-based cheese dishes or a cassoulet you mentioned earlier. But for me, these higher-concentrated wines with higher tannins, they need something like that to kind of balance in your mouth.
2: When you say big with <laughs> cheese, that starts to get me to think not only a, you know, about the big cheeses, you know, um, a triple creme or something like that, but then also... Um, Various Italian dishes, you know, Mm -hmm. lasagna and other types of Italian Mm -hmm. dishes have a lot of cheese incorporated Mm -hmm. to them. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, you could do this. You can do this with pizza, but you can also do this with another duck confit. Yeah, um, big. You you can do it with a big steak. Braised meats. Yeah, pork tenderloin. I was thinking would be fantastic. That's Mm -hmm.
4: exactly. We we serve that a lot. Nina loves to make the the shoulder, Mm -hmm. pork shoulders, and um, we. This is the first thing we pull out. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: Delicious. So we're just about out of time. Ladies, any final questions for Peter? No, I think, it, I think
1: that the wines are exquisite, and I love what you've done to create your own, you know, taking the GSM model and turning it into sort of your own model for that's appropriate for the growing conditions here. And, and, where, and where are
3: the wines available? I was going to ask. Peter, I mean, where are the direct? wines available?
4: Well, the right here at the panel. They are carrying call. them across the street at Sonoma Market. And for uh, those listening across the country? Well, available online at mathiswine.com. Isn't
0: your phone number on every cork?
4: It is. <laughs> it is. <laughs> <laughs> it is. That's really, really yeah. handy.
0: <laughs> and how about over at Sonoma's Best? Got yeah, anything Sonoma's in there? Best is a, Sonoma's Best is a really yeah, good outlet excellent. for people, to. They can order. They can get packages put together, uh, mix and match. It doesn't matter. Todd thank Jolly you. does a really great job. Thank you. Oh, so, wonderful job.
2: In reading the cork, 888-456-5202. It's also on the back of the labels. There you so, go. two places. Yes. <laughs> Smart marketing move. Yes.
0: Thing is, kids, yeah. order it. Order it. There, order there it you and go. Enjoy it. Oh,
2: thank you, Wow. Well, Peter, thank you so much for being here thank you all. on Wine Women Radio. We really appreciate it. And uh, Misty Rodebush, thank you. Yes, Lisa thank you. Adams Walter, thank, thank you. John Myers on the board. Thank, thank you so much. You. Thank you And John. listeners, we hope you'll tune in again for another episode of Wine Women Radio. Bye-bye. Bye.
4: Thank you. Bye-bye.